Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friend. Welcome to episode number 197 of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh, life coach, recovering alcoholic, and entrepreneur. And we talk about all those things to some degree on this show. So if you're into any of those things, you're in the right place. I wanted to jump in here really quickly before this episode starts. You're going to love this conversation I have today with Jillian Teets from Sober Powered Podcast. And because a huge part of Jill's story is her pursuit of moderation, I wanted to make a quick guide for you guys with a questionnaire so you can figure out where you really are in this drinking spectrum. Are you an alcoholic or are you someone that can moderate? Do you need to stop drinking altogether or can you figure out how to control it? So I put this guide together for you. It's going to go out to my whole email list. If you are on my list, you're going to get this with your weekly podcast email. It will be right there for you. If you're not on my list and you want to get on the list, go to addictionunlimited.com and right there on the homepage, a pop-up will pop up and (laughs) you can sign up right there to get on the email list or you can join us in the Facebook group and you have the opportunity to give me your email when you join the Facebook group. I wanted to take a minute and let you know that this is not an abnormal thought process. All of us goes through this phase of trying to figure out if we can moderate it. It's hard to get to the place of understanding you don't have control or you've lost control. So we all have these attempts at moderation. Maybe it's you don't let yourself go out until really late, so you only have a couple of hours. Maybe you tell yourself you're only going to have one drink an hour, you're going to have a glass of water between every drink, or you're only going to drink wine and not hard alcohol, or you're only going to drink on the weekend, or you never drink before 5 p.m. All of these things are attempts at moderation. And as alcoholics, we typically fail at those, right? And it is a part of the journey. So I wanted to put together this guide for you to give you some support and help and an opportunity to figure out where you are in that. For me, I tried a bunch of moderation things, but I never questioned if I was an alcoholic. I was pretty clear on that because I knew more than anything that I just thought about it too much. And it made sense to me that anybody that wasn't an alcoholic wouldn't think about alcohol as much as I thought about alcohol in a good way or a bad way. So again, all my email list is going to get this guide. I will send that out to you. If you want to get on the email list, addictionunlimited.com, wait a few seconds, a pop-up will pop up and uh, you can jump on the email list there. Join us in the Facebook group. I hope you're having a fantastic day, and I hope you love this episode with Jill as much as I did. She's hilarious and amazing, and here we go. 
Hello, my friends. I am so excited about this episode. You guys are not even going to believe who I have on here. And I have been waiting weeks to do this recording and really so excited because we're going to talk to Jillian Teets from Sober Powered Podcast. And I feel like I'm seeing her name all over the place recently in our Facebook group. People are talking about her and her podcast, and she's absolutely absolutely freaking adorable. So I, I just have been dying to have this conversation and learn more about her. You guys know I'm obsessed with the brain. I love that little brain and she knows way more about this stuff than me. So hopefully I'm going to learn some stuff today too. So let's take a minute and welcome Jillian to the show. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. Thank you. And thank you for such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> Well, why don't you take a minute and just tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, so I am Jill. I just celebrated two years of sobriety about two weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was a really exciting milestone. And I work, um, I'm a biochemist. I work in the Boston area. And yeah, when I stopped drinking, I just wanted to understand like, was this my fault? Was this my choice? Am I actually a loser? Am I weak-willed? Um, do I just have no self-control? And I started reading about it and learning that, no, it's actually not my fault. And there's a, a million different reasons. There's so many reasons that something like this could happen. And eventually I just felt compelled to share so that other people could understand because the shame keeps us so stuck just yeah. like drinking, hating ourselves, drinking because we hate ourselves, hating ourselves even worse, drinking even more. The vicious cycle. <laughs> it is. And it's hard. I think it's hard to understand that it's not about fault. You know, I am, I don't like to blame anything, anyone, like it's not blame to me. It's like more like, let's take responsibility. What's my part? What can I do? What's the solution? And when I got sober, which was something around a hundred years ago, it feels like <laughs> now, <laughs> but, but when I got sober, I remember early on, I read an article and they were just proving the genetic components in our brain. Like it had been speculation forever and they thought, yeah, there are some genetic pieces, but they were finally identifying exactly what was happening in the brain. And I remember reading that article and I so wish I still had it because it was such a huge piece of my healing, you know, but I remember reading that article and it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was fixable. It's the first time I didn't just feel like I was defective, you know, but that there was actually something happening that was bigger than me, that was bigger than my willpower and all of those things that we think. Yeah. And I think that the genetic link and all of this information is just really helpful so that you can see like, I didn't choose this. There's nothing wrong with me. There's like, I couldn't understand why this was happening to me. And it didn't happen to my husband who was drinking all the time with me. Like he was able to switch to water. And I'm like, why can't I do that? <laughs> I want to more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Why can't I just do that? And yeah, learning about genetics and 
that it's not just like one gene, it's the influence of so many different genes and trauma can then influence your genes too. It's, it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating for sure. Did you know pretty early on in your recovery, did you know that you wanted your work to be about recovery or that you wanted to be involved in it in certain ways? No. Um, So I had aspirations to get promoted in my current career, be really important, make a difference, um, manage people, like do all of these really cool things. And then the longer that I stayed sober, I was like, maybe I should write a book. Maybe I should go to a meeting. Maybe I should talk to people. Maybe I should like post about this stuff. And it slowly started infiltrating my life. Um, And then before I knew it, I was just like, recovery was my passion, my biggest passion ever. Yeah. I love that becomes its own addiction. I think in a lot of ways, one of the things you said that I probably saw on your Instagram, because that's how I most often stalk people (laughs) (laughs) that I saw something where you talked about that you spent five years trying to figure out moderation. So I really want you to explain a little bit about that. Like, what was that journey? What do you mean trying to figure out, like you were just trying to moderate. It took you five years to get to the place of, oh, wow, I can't have any. Yeah. So I, I drank for seven years total and five of those years I spent obsessively trying to moderate. Um, so I couldn't take a hint, but I, So I started drinking at 22 when I went to grad school because everybody else was drinking and I wanted to fit in and be liked. And then by the end of that year, I was a daily drinker. And then by the following year, my tolerance had doubled. And that's kind of what alerted me to the fact that I was drinking a lot. I didn't think daily drinking was a problem because like, doesn't everybody do that? And I grew up with this fantasy that being a successful adult meant sharing a bottle of wine every night with my husband. So why wouldn't I do that every day? I was just kind of doing a lot more than that. Um, But like the romantic thought was still there. And I remember I used to make these ridiculous Cosmos in a pint glass and it was like probably 80% alcohol, maybe like close to 90% sometimes and like a splash of diet cranberry juice just enough. So it wasn't like a clear drink. (laughs) And I started having two of those per night, every single night, even on work nights. And I was going to work every single day, hungover. I was blacking out like most nights per week. And I realized like, this is kind of a lot of alcohol. Like I love video games and I was having to restart all of these video games because blacked out Jill was playing them and I'd log in the next day and I had no idea what was going on. So, <laughs> so it's just like little things like that. And then I thought, okay, well, you're drinking too much. Why don't you just moderate and drink less and then you'll be good. And so it started. <laughs> Moderation for me was miserable the worst, the worst. I tried all these different things. First, when I first started recognizing that I had a problem drinking, I still lived in Los Angeles and we had a program called moderation management. 
And I think I was, I was probably, I don't know, 26 or 27 or something. And I, and I had had a couple of people make comments about how much I drank. Like I had definitely started to pick up on little things where my drinking was different than my friends. I knew that I didn't do it the way other people did it, you know? So I thought, well, maybe I'll try this moderation management. Like this sounds cool. Of course I wasn't in a place of thinking I had to quit forever or a hundred percent. So I went on online and I read there like how to get started. And the first thing it said was the first thing you do is you don't drink anything for 30 days. And I was like, well, that's out of the question. (laughs) It's like, I can't do that. (laughs) And that was the extent of my career with moderation management. And then, you know, fast forward some years when my drinking really got ugly and very out of control and very dark and sad. Um, I tried all of the moderation things, right? I'm going to have one drink an hour. I'm only going to drink on certain nights. I'm only going to have a certain number of drinks. I remember one time my girlfriend said to me, she's like, I think you should only drink wine. And I go, well, I don't think it's what I drink. I think it's that I drink a hundred of them. <laughs> that's the problem. It's not what's in the glass. That's the problem. It's how many glasses there are. <laughs> but I tried all of those things and it was miserable trying to moderate. Like it was such a relief when I finally hit that place of, okay, it's zero. Like zero is so much easier than trying to moderate. Yeah, I heard you a while ago talk about moderation management and all that on a podcast. And I was so excited to hear because <laughs> that was me. And not a lot of people talk about obsessively trying to moderate. Um, and I'm really lucky that I didn't know that that existed back when I was drinking. Um, but the yeah. 30 days would have scared me away too. I had a friend who also kind of struggles a little bit ask me if I would do dry January with her to support her. And I was like, no, like, <laughs> I, I, I'm here for you, but no, <laughs> my goal is not to not drink. My goal is to moderate. Therefore I need to practice starting and stopping, Moving, right. not drinking is not going to help. Like, no, I need to practice stopping. So oh I must God. drink every day to get the maximum amount of practice. (laughs) Oh, our best thinking, I tell you. And you know, honestly, I don't know if moderation management is even a thing anymore. I don't know if that exists. I mean, I am probably... 25 years older than you. So when, when I say this was when I was 25 or 26, that was 25 years ago. Um, and actually the, the lady, it's a pretty tragic story. Honestly, the lady who had started moderation management, uh, actually relapsed and had a bad accident and people died in the accident. It was really horrible. But so I don't even know if that program is a thing anymore. I thought it was last time I checked or there was something very similar because I'm surprised like with her story and then, you know, she ended up committing suicide, I think at the end of all that. Yeah. But there are other things. Like I remember an Instagram account about teaching people how to moderate followed me once. And I was like severely offended. Like, (laughs) are you trying to get me to moderate? Like, 
<laughs> but there will always be things because we're so yeah. obsessed with keeping it around. And Yeah, for sure. I mean, it feels it's so frightening to think, and we all go through this, right? It's like, what will my life be like without it? Because you associate it with everything. It's connection, it's bonding, it's date night, it's stress relief, it's fun, it's celebration. I mean, you associate it with everything. So it's hard to sit back and go, wow, could I really not drink at all? Like, how would I survive that? Will I ever have fun again? And I get all those thought processes. I just think for me, once I hit the place that my drinking was really not an option anymore, like I just, I had to stop effing around, you know, I had to just get really serious about figuring it out. And I did figure out pretty quickly because I was scared that I wouldn't be funny anymore. I was like, what if I'm only funny because I'm drunk, you know, because I have such terrible anxiety. I was like, so really, what if I'm only funny because I'm drunk? And then I thought, well, no, because I go to work and I'm at work a few hours before I start drinking and I'm still funny in those few hours, you know, it's like, so I'll be okay. I can still be funny. And that was a huge hurdle for me because I just really, I wasn't sure I could do it. But if somebody would have told me how much easier it is to just have zero, I feel like I would have done this a hundred years ago. Yeah. The mental energy that is required to start from, I'm never drinking ever again. And then the hangover fades and you're like, oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean never again. And then like <laughs> slowly, like I would convince myself why it was a good idea. Not just that it was okay for me to drink, like you're good, go ahead. But why it's a great idea to drink. And you can't argue with that, you know? And then I would do it again. And then I'd wake up the next day like, oh man, again, why, did I, why do I keep doing this? And then again, by 3 p.m., I'm convincing myself why I should drink. Right. And it's so exhausting and like researching all these stupid strategies. And, and I used to read articles about how like why alcohol is good and like send them to my husband and be like, see, look how good it is. For <laughs> Red wine is healthy. They say it's healthy. <laughs> and I drink white, but <laughs> white must be good, too. <laughs> <laughs> we can justify anything. <laughs> so what has been your most surprising thing you've learned about addiction from a science standpoint? Like, what was that piece of information that you were like, whoa, <laughs> like, what is that about? <laughs> I think when I started researching moderation, one of the first things I ever learned about was like why alcohol causes anxiety. Cause I was struggling with middle of the night anxiety. Um, but then I started researching moderation and like, why, why can't I just stop? Like, why do I have these thoughts? Like you've got to drive, so you should chill, but then I don't, then I drink a thousand drinks anyways, and then drive. So I think learning about that and it's very complicated um, like why we can think it, but then don't act on it. But that was really insightful. And there's been some cool studies, um, in animals where they looked at their brains while they are either making the decision to not drink or compulsively drinking. And it's fascinating. Like there was one 
um, where they they got the mice addicted to alcohol and obsessed with alcohol. And then they, every time they would press a lever to get the alcohol, they would give them a little shock on their feet. And most of the mice were like, okay, yeah, I'm good. I don't want that shock. But there's a small group of mice that just do not care. And they are over there like pulling that lever, getting shocked, like they don't care. They don't even like, they don't even consider it. They just keep going. And they looked at their brains and the mice that chose to pass on the alcohol had like this active part of the brain that was not active in the compulsively drinking mice. And there's so many studies like that on like different areas of the brain. And, and I think it's so cool to see, to actually like visualize not having the choice because a lot of us say we don't have an off switch but science can actually like show you what that looks like and it's very validating and it helps me not like it helps with the shame of not being able to control myself yeah yeah conceptually I think that's a huge challenge right it's like I remember thinking it's a liquid in a glass, right? Like, how could I not control this? And I always use the analogy now of the ocean. You know, I'm a scuba diver and the ocean is really powerful and I'm a small person. So if I'm not careful when I'm in the ocean, like I just get tossed around, you know, I mean, it's so powerful. And it's like, you think about it, it's just water, but I have very little control over what's going on in there. And that's exactly how alcohol was like, again, conceptually, it's hard to fathom that this liquid in a glass can completely take over your mind and body (laughs) and cause insanity, but but it does. I mean, it is, it's just not, I can, I can control a lot of things. I can moderate a lot of things in this world. Alcohol is not one of them. Yeah. And then we have people that do have the ability to moderate saying like, you know, why can't you just have one? Like, why do you have to stop? Why can't you just moderate? And they don't understand at all because they don't have these thoughts about like, one is good. Two is better. Three is even better. Four is even better. Um, and actually to answer your question now, it just popped into my head. The most insightful thing I ever learned was that alcohol doesn't feel the same for everybody. That, that was the big one because I couldn't understand why people would leave behind half a beer or why they didn't want a thousand drinks or why they didn't want to drink every single day. Cause it was the literally the best thing that's ever existed. And then I found out that it doesn't feel the same for everybody And I was like, huh, look at that. So for other people, like maybe pizza or um, maybe cannabis or something else is like the best feeling in the entire world. And those things, I'm just like, eh, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's good. I don't care either way. Like, fine. And that's how they feel about alcohol. And when I found that out, I was like, oh, my God, that's why my husband can stop and I can't stop because he doesn't know how good it feels because it just feels fine for him. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. And is that because our pleasure center functions a bit differently than it does in non-addicted people? Yeah. So there are a few reasons that can happen. Um, I think 
probably the easiest one to understand is endorphin levels. So when we drink, um, the brain releases endorphins Mm -hmm. and then those release dopamine that reinforce the behavior and the endorphins are what feels amazing. And some people have very low levels of endorphins naturally. And other people have like kind of average levels. And for people that have average levels of endorphins, they take a drink and it stays flat, the levels of endorphins that they have. It's just, they're just chilling. They feel the same. And for people that have naturally low levels of endorphins, they take a drink and their endorphins levels shoot up above baseline. So it feel it, they don't even like go to where the average people are. They just so exceed that. So when, so if you think about that, that's the difference between taking a drink and being like, oh, okay, cool, you know, cool. And taking a drink and being like, oh my God, like, what is this magic? <laughs> and that would make you want to drink more. If it feels yeah. like the best thing ever, why would you not want to drink it every single day, every opportunity? It is so crazy. Like I remember one particular night when I was bartending and the boyfriend of one of the servers had come to pick her up and he was awesome. I loved him. And he would sit at the bar and hang out with me waiting for her. And we were chatting, you know, and I'm serving people and I yelled down to him. I was like, Ryan, do you want another beer? He's like, Oh no, Angela, I'm starting to feel this one. So I better stop. And I literally like, I was so baffled. <laughs> I was like, what? what do you mean? What do you mean? You better stop. I was like, that's when you get a, a shot and another beer, Ryan. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're terrible at this, you know? But I I I was so stunned by his like, oh, I'm starting to feel it. I better stop. And I was like, oh, what a weird way to think about drinking. <laughs> that's when you go harder. Yes, that's right. When you pick it up enough, that's when you're going, oh, thank God I can feel it, you know, (laughs) and then you go, you keep going. But yeah, so it's interesting for you to break it down that way that it does feel differently for different people. Yeah. And then there's other people too, that um, when they drink, they feel tired or they get a headache and um, maybe they get a hangover that lasts two days or something. And then there's people like me where I don't feel anything negative. I just feel amazing. I never get tired until I pass out. And my hangovers would last like half a day usually, or for the excruciating ones, they would last one full day. Mm -hmm. So if you can process alcohol better, then you're just going to go for it. But maybe that guy was starting to get a little headache and he was like, oh, I have this headache. I, I don't want to, <laughs> but I wasn't getting headaches. I was just no. feeling more and more and more and more amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's so funny. I would have never, I would have never even thought about it like that. And I guess when you're talking about it, it does seem super logical too, because we all kind of respond differently to different things. Like I love broccoli. Maybe you hate it. You know what I mean? Like you do like it does, it is, it kind of makes sense when you say it, like we don't have the same responses to stuff. So it would make sense that alcohol would be the same way. Yeah. And we don't think about that. Like we just think everyone has the same experience that we have. And that's why people who don't struggle with alcohol, like can't understand us. And that's why the stigma exists because they're like, why can't you just 
stop. Like it's not hard. And they don't, they can't even fathom our experience. And it's the same way for us. We're like, why wouldn't you guys do this all the time? What's, why are you so boring? Yeah. I couldn't ever figure out why, like so many of my friends would just go home at the end of the night. (laughs) Right. And that was one of my first inklings that my drinking was different, right? Is one night leaving a bar and all my friends like, okay, see you later. Call you tomorrow. And I was like, why would they go home when we could drink more? Cause I had already spent the last 30 minutes in my head going, do I need to leave early and stop at the liquor store? Do I have booze at home? Or are we going to an after hours? Like I had already planned ahead for the next drinks. They hadn't even thought about them. Yep. Yeah. And when you think of it like that, you realize, like you described it as insanity. And that's how it really felt to me. Like when I finally got mental clarity back, I was like, wow, that was scary. How much that changed you and the way that I thought, because all I thought about was alcohol. When can I have it? How do I make sure I don't have too much? You know, what's the moderation strategy for tonight? Oh, I hate myself so much for having this much, but I need another drink. (laughs) I would just think about it all the time. You can't think about anything else. Yeah. I was either thinking about it and planning it, doing it or recovering from it. I mean, those were my only phases of life was in one of those places for sure. What would you say in your sobriety thus far, what has been one of your greatest challenges and how have you gotten through it and stayed sober? I had a very big challenge. We were kind of talking about this before we started recording, actually, um, but I'll tell you the whole story. So back in June, I was passed over for a promotion and um, I had been promised a promotion for a year and like reinforced, you're amazing you're killing it. You are getting this promotion. Like you're the best. And so I thought I'm getting this promotion. Look at me. I can't wait. And then it was announced that one of my colleagues got the promotion. And I was like, are we both? I'm so silly. Like, are we both getting promoted? (laughs) I didn't realize it for a bit. And then I asked about it because I had been promised for so long, you're getting this promotion. And the attitude was like, why would you even think that you would get one? And like telling me how I need to be different and be more like this guy and like all these changes. And it wasn't actually like in science, there's one type of personality that's very valued. And it's one that I don't have. And I was being told you need to be more like this person and you need to act like this and blah, blah, blah. And when I left that meeting, I was so triggered. I thought I was going to lose my mind because one of my biggest triggers is people in power, specifically men, making me feel that I am stupid. And that is how I felt times 1000. And the way I've handled that in the past is by completely destroying my life with alcohol. Um, And that was my instinct. I was like, I don't even care. I just want to get drunk, like screw everybody. I suck. I'm the worst. This is all my fault. I'm stupid. And then I thought like, you can't do that. 
because alcohol is not an option. So I'm like, well, you can't do that. So what can you do? So I started listing off all of these things in my head. I'm like, you can go on a walk. And then I'm like, oh, dumb. You can call a friend like, oh, that one sucks. You can, <laughs> you can clean your house. And I'm listing off like all these things that I could do until I settled on one that was like, okay, I'll try that. Like, I'll try it, whatever. So I put my earbuds in and I cranked up uh, very angry music to the max. Like it was blowing my head up. It was so loud. And I just like listened to music for like hours like that. And then I calmed down. Um, Yeah. And it was, it was a crazy experience where before I would get blackout drunk, cry, I would feel better for maybe an hour or two. And then I would get like really angry, really upset, really hurt, go to work with a hangover, do it again, repeat, 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 repeat till eventually I got over it. And this time I actually handled it, processed it, talked to people. And then I woke up the next day and I felt a little bit better. Then I processed it, handled it. Um, made some decisions and plans. And um, then I woke up the next day, I felt a little bit better. So I actually worked through it. And then by the time, like I was really feeling better a few days later, I was like, wow, that's how you like deal with hard things. You just like, (laughs) (laughs) it's such a foreign concept to alcoholics, you know, (laughs) alcohol wasn't helping before. Like, weird (laughs) yeah blacking out every day for two weeks didn't help what (laughs) I thought it was the problem solver no it is but I also appreciate what you just said too about going down the list and like in your head you're like nope I don't want to do that that's dumb that sucks f that I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to because you're stuck in that place right you don't feel good and you don't want to do one of these corny cheesy things that's on your list of coping skills you know because it doesn't it never feels like it's going to be enough and I think we always want something really big and profound and the truth is real life adulting coping skills are a bunch of really silly, corny little things (laughs) that you do on a regular basis. And we talk about that a lot, right? Like don't go down the list and just no, 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 no. I love that you were willing to try something and you kept going down your list until you found something. You're like, okay, let me just try that. Instead of saying F it, you know, because that's, that's huge. That's hard for us. Yeah. And that was my first real experience with a trigger in sobriety. Um, And for other things, for other things that aren't so big emotionally, a walk helps. And I do the list then too. And I'm like, okay, I can rage clean the kitchen. And that's great. Like, it's not that I'm like, I think those all suck forever. They just weren't good enough for this like big thing. Um, but yeah, I think having, listing out all the stupid ones, you can meditate, you can go on a run, you can go to the gym and lift the heaviest thing you can find. You can call a friend and talk trash, um, clean your house. You can take a nap. I don't know, take a bubble bath. Like there's, and maybe someone listening to this is like rolling their eyes. Like you're dumb. You don't understand me. But just like you said, it's a bunch of little corny 
coping strategies and then you feel better. And by not self-destructing, you can actually get through the thing and move on with your life. And the truth of it is what makes you actually feel better is the willingness to try something and the open-mindedness to go, okay, this doesn't sound like, you know, it's going to be life-changing, but let me see if it'll get me through the next 15 minutes. You know, just having the willingness to try, that's what really gets you through it. It doesn't have much to do with what the activity is. It's just that you're open-minded enough to want to do it. Or also, to want to protect yourself. Because I remember in my first year, for sure, going to AA, like, listen, I promise you 90% of the things they said to do, I was like, what the F ever. (laughs) I did all of it though. You know, none of it sounded fun. None of it was like top of my to-do list. Like I wasn't doing cartwheels every day down the hall to get to the AA meeting. I mean, I guess I kind of was for a long time, but did they have all these little things in I didn't want to do any of them, but I knew I had to be smart enough to follow the suggestions of the people who were already successfully sober. I just had enough common sense to not argue with the people that were already doing what I was trying to learn how to do. And it saved me. Honestly, it it was my saving grace. It's just, I was willing to do it whether I wanted to or not. And in fact, if I didn't want to do it, that motivated me more because I felt like if I was uncomfortable, then I knew I was doing it right. (laughs) I was doing the right thing because if I was comfortable, that meant I was in my comfort zone, which was drunk and deadly, you know? Yeah. And we're so used to instant gratification while we're drinking and we're used to having a trigger or having something bad happen, get drunk instantly, like who cares? Or you eat an entire pizza and a brownie and you forget about it. But all of these stupid eye roll coping strategies are not instant gratification. They're things that actually help. And That's why they feel like crap to think about because they actually help. We're drinking. Like if, if I think back to all the times I was insanely triggered and got drunk because of it, I only made it worse afterwards. Like I forgot about it for the first hour or two. And then I felt a thousand times worse. Yeah. Angrier, more miserable, hated myself on top of it, stayed up all night long probably drunk texted a ton of people. So then add some humiliation into it and you wake up the next day and you feel even worse where if you just like would do these strategies that maybe roll your eyes at, maybe they feel like stupid in the first hour, but then you'll notice as time goes on, you feel better and not worse. And like, that's the point. And that's, what's so hard Mm -hmm. for us. We're expecting that instant fix and cleaning your house, calling a friend, meditating, going to the gym, those don't instantly make you feel better. But they do start to slowly restore your sense of personal integrity. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and I was thinking like when you were going through that list of like, when you, you know, the next day, the day after, and I was thinking about the, that alcohol anxiety, you know, the day after anxiety and especially already being an anxiety person, like none of it, I mean, none of it is worth it. Like I would so much rather go do something corny and silly and call a friend or take my dog for a walk. Like I would much rather do something like that than deal with the aftermath of my self-destruction, right? Because that's really what it is. And then my self-loathing would be at an all-time high and nothing on the planet feels worse than like disappointing yourself, right? When I would wake up in the morning and realized that I had lowered my standards even lower in whatever way, like it was just heartbreaking, you know, like none of it's worth it. Yeah, it's so depressing and defeating. And I I used to try to set goals unrelated to not drinking. And automatically, before I could even finish thinking about the goal, I would start thinking like, yeah, right. Like you're not going to accomplish that. And it's because I let myself down every single day when I was, I wasn't going to drink and then like, I should drink, but I'm going to moderate. And then I don't do that either. Mm -hmm. And I just continuously disappoint myself. And I, I didn't believe that I could do anything. Like, even if it was like, oh, I'm going to come home and clean the kitchen and make it look really nice. I'd be like, yeah, right. You're not doing that. You're going to get takeout and sit on the couch like a loser and talking to yourself that way. It's so horrible. It's so sad. Hugs to like everybody going through that right now. It is so sad for sure. And you don't realize it. I don't think like for me, when I was in the midst of that, I didn't realize how mean I was to myself. You know, I didn't realize that until later, but it is, it's heartbreaking to think like, I would never speak like that to another human being, but we're fine to speak like that to ourselves right in our head. Yeah. And that helps me too about the recovery community and other people sharing their experience because I, when I started, thought I was the biggest loser, failure, you know, everything bad ever. That's me. And then I would follow people that I admire or I would listen to their podcasts or watch them on YouTube or read their blogs or whatever. And occasionally people share things and you read that or hear it or, or whatever you're doing. And it's like, whoa, that person did that or they'll share a picture or something. And I would always think like, I don't think this person is a huge loser and a failure and the worst person who's ever existed. So why am I? And it helped a lot to know that like, I'm not the only person who thought about moderation obsessively and couldn't stop once I started and, and like all these other shameful things from my past. Like it, it just helps to know you're not the only one who did those stupid things. Yeah. Yeah. I know one of the things I've been surprised about in just daily conversation is when I will say to people, you know, people talk about like going to their first meeting and not even necessarily just AA. Sometimes, you know, I'm sure it's other meetings, celebrate recovery or whatever, but going to their first meeting and like how much anxiety they have. And I'll say like, just remember that every single person in the room had their first meeting. Like we all felt like that. We all, I still have that feeling every time I'm in a different place, if I'm in a different state or a different country going to a meeting, I have the same exact feeling because it's all unfamiliar, you know? 
uh, and people being like, thank you so much for saying that because you don't think about it in your head. You think it's only you, you think it's only you feeling that way. And everybody else had a different experience. Like, no, we all went through that nerve wracking experience of like pacing around the parking lot before we went in the building <laughs> or pulling in the parking lot and br- abruptly pulling out of the parking lot before we actually went in. Like everybody has those feelings. It is, it's nerve wracking. Okay. Favorite question. Final question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? My favorite thing is I think the peace that it brings. And before my life was so dramatic and chaotic um, and everybody else sucked so much. Like my husband, he was the worst, you know, everything was his fault. And then getting sober, like life is just stable. And I love the stability. And a lot of times we think that's boredom, but I love not having those lows anymore. And I'll sacrifice that like extreme high for a regular old high. Um, Yeah. So I think the peace and knowing like every day has the potential to be good, not waking up and being like, oh, geez, (laughs) what's going to happen today? Like how much, how much am I going to hate myself today? Yeah. Or who am I going to have to apologize to? (laughs) (laughs) Looking through the text messages Uh from the night before. I'm so grateful that when I quit drinking, texting was just becoming a thing, you know, like we were doing a little bit, but it wasn't all anybody did yet, but also like, you know, there weren't really good cell phone cameras or cell phone, you know, video, like there's no proof, very little photographic proof of my (laughs) insanity. (laughs) I'm so grateful for that because, you know, there were a couple of years there that were very questionable (laughs) and I'm so glad they're over. (laughs) Jill, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you more. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So this is is a dream come true for me so thank you you've reached the end of another great episode of the addiction unlimited podcast candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about love this episode please take 30 seconds to subscribe rate and review on itunes to help us improve and give you the information you want thanks for listening see you next week